0: And welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen. And today with us we have Ira Winderman of the South Florida Sun Sentinel who covers the Miami Heat. Ira, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here on one of my four or eight weeks off this entire season. So, so you you have a rare one-sixtieth of my time off right now.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to squeeze me in here um so Ira we're gonna start as we always do here why don't you just take me and the listeners through your journey through sports media as far as back as when
1: you first realized that this is something that you wanted to do to how you where you are now yeah I'm not going to take you through too many stops so this will be relatively brief basically uh, I went I went to school in upstate New York uh it was called SUNY Binghamton at the time it's now um Binghamton State uh Binghamton University actually in New York and Probably my greatest claim to fame there was um, I would cover their Division Three basketball team at the time. They're Division One now. And this um, stocky but talented point guard once came in from SUNY Brockport to play in a game. And you don't know who you're covering at the time. And then 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, it's like, wow, I wrote a story about Sam Van Gundy playing college <laughs> basketball when he was playing at Brockport. So, that's sort of how the basketball bug began, and I stayed up there, worked professionally at the newspaper up there, uh, a Gannett newspaper for a while, and about, gosh, it's been a while, about 36 years ago, I came down to the uh, Sun Sentinel here in Fort Lauderdale, um, started as an editor. Um, Originally, I was just gonna be an editor, and then they said, hey, who knows auto racing? Well, in upstate New York, I had covered the Watkins Glen races. They had a Formula One race at the time. Covered that, they put me on auto racing, went to Daytona, went to Indy. They said, well, that's not enough of a beat, so uh, how about we mix in boxing? And at the time, there was this young, powerful guy, a little out of control uh, by the name of Mike Tyson just starting his boxing career. And so I I segued after maybe the greatest non-heavyweight era ever, when I was covering Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler and Roberto Duran and Thomas Hitman Hearns, covered all their fights, sort of their own round robin. Started covering Hagler, did that. And then they said, hey, I think we're going to be one of the first papers to have one of a newspaper guy live in a college city. Do you want to go up and live for free in Gainesville? And I'm like, okay, 27-year-old, single, co-eds, you're paying my rent. Yes, I'm there.
0: Twisting arm, why don't you? Right. Yeah.
1: Like, you know, so no complaints about that. So went up there, did that. Um, at the same time, the University of Miami was restarting their basketball program. They had basically stopped after Rick Barry. There wasn't much interest, and I volunteered to come back and do that. And they said, no, it's going pretty good up in Gainesville. you got the football team. You have a pretty good basketball team coming up. Uh, Dwayne Shintis was on that team, Vernon Maxwell. Mad Max is crazy back then as he was during his career, and he is if you follow him on Twitter right now. And then the heat started. And 32 years ago, they said, well, we know you like basketball. You wanted to cover the University of Miami. Would you like to cover the heat? and and honestly, I mean, that's how I wrapped this all up. And 32 years later, from day one till now, just been covering the Miami Heat. I clearly am not promotion worthy. So uh, that's <laughs> where it's been.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you are actually the first uh, reporter that I've talked to who's been with one newspaper for that entire period of time, just yeah, because, you know, the nature don't of the industry. Yeah, true, true. The nature of the industry, you know, people jump around. It's just sort of natural how these things happen, whether you want to or not. But you have gotten lucky enough, I would say, to stay at pretty much one place the whole time. So, you know, with 35 years of experience in your career, my first question would be really, What what about the Sun Sentinel made you want to always stick there? And did you ever get any offers to leave? And if you didn't, or I mean, if you did, then why did you choose
1: to stay? You know what? I talked to a bunch of people, I'm not going to lie, along the way. And and the paper always took care of me. And and, and as you know, and a lot of the people you spoke to, if you can work for an outlet that is willing to send you on the road for all the important road games, Mm -hmm. that is willing to pay for the coverage of the team, that is willing to basically give you the tools to be as good as you can be. I mean... When this whole thing started and he weren't very good, I was at the conference finals live every year. I was at the NBA finals every year doing things like summer league. So as long as they let me sort of, you know, pursue my craft and also my radio job here, my television stuff, it, I, I, it wasn't really a matter of, oh, you're at a suburban newspaper. Because I think now, you, one, you make your name. And two, when this thing in the middle of my career started called the internet, everyone was a national writer. Everyone was international. It didn't mean as much so. There really was no reason. And again, you know, knock on wood, you know, hopefully there's not going to be a reason. But so far, so good. They've let me cover a beat the way a beat should be covered. I know a lot of the people you've spoken to probably have told you what they used to be able to do, how they used to be able to see stories has changed. So, so far, you know, I'm still one of the few people left in the country that still does a Sunday notes column, a half a page every Sunday, sort of a remnant to people actually read a thing called, I don't know if you heard this term, Newspapers, you know, spread it out. (laughs) Spread spread it out Sunday, read your coffee, you know, you drink your coffee and read that. So, hey, if they've been good to me, there's no reason I shouldn't be good to them.
0: Well, that's a great mindset and one that I think a lot of people in our business would like to have, but are often not afforded the opportunity. And it certainly seems like you're aware of that at the very least. But uh, going all the way back to when you were covering basketball up in Mm -hmm. uh, upstate New York, there was So was sports journalism always what you went to college and really had in your mind
1: what you wanted to do? You know, it's one of those deals where you want to keep your parents happy. So you go ahead and you pursue the degree in political science and economics, because that means, you know, for three, four years, they're off your back. But I worked at the local newspaper. I mean, the day I walked into, when I went to college, Mm -hmm. when they were having freshman orientation, I went into the newspaper office and I said, what can I do? And I was writing baseball previews. I, I wrote probably 20 articles before my first class in college, I went across the street. Matter of fact, this isn't just between you and me, and you're not gonna play this for anyone. They had this thing at our school, it was called a media practicum. And you can get up to eight credits a semester for working basically an internship. My transcript has 32 credits of media 199 of simply working at the newspaper there. So that's sort of how I was able to skate through college for three years and do that instead. So yeah, I always knew I wanted to do this. My dad always said, how can you make some money? Well, I'm living in a house. I paid the rent. I paid the insurance. So, so far, so good. Social Security (laughs) said I'll be set in a few years. So, it sort of paid off, but I knew from the get-go. Just sort of just like you. If you don't have to work for a living and you can do this, if you're a sports fan, why would you want to do anything else? I get paid to watch NBA basketball.
0: I mean, I completely agree with you, obviously. And then, so once you headed down to the newspaper and you were an editor and then moved on to the boxing beat, you mentioned that the basketball bugs sort of started with that yeah. Stan Van Gundy thing. So while you were on these other beats in your early days at the Sun Sentinel, were you always kind of hoping for an opportunity to get back at basketball or were you just tackling right whenever was in front of you and worrying about all that other stuff later?
1: Yeah, you know, it was, I was always living in the moment because the moments were so good, whether it was living up in Gainesville. I mean, when I was covering the Gators in Gainesville, I was a Galen Hall, you might know the name. He was the head coach there. Mm-hmm. They were wonderfully mediocre. And I say that for this reason, because they went eight and four, I was able to go to the Aloha Bowl. So they were mediocre enough for me to go to Hawaii. So that was, a that, that, you can't complain about that. You know, Yeah, you can have your tournament of roses. I'll go to Hawaii for Christmas instead. So I was loving every moment. There was not a moment I was on a, on a beat that I didn't want to stay. When I was covering boxing, I was in Atlantic City or Las Vegas every month. Again, everything paid for. What person in their 20s, or probably 30s or 40s, -hmm. wouldn't want to be doing that on a regular basis? Mm -hmm. I I was covering one fight at Caesars, where actually, it's kind of a sad story, the boxer in one of the prelims was knocked out and eventually died, Mm -hmm. and the ring doctor was rushed up there and they rushed him off to the hospital. Next fight, they didn't know whether they should stop the fight or not. Well, back in those days, sports writers actually dressed well. I was wearing a white shirt sitting ringside, and they tugged me on the jacket, and they said, we need you up in the ring, because I was sitting to where the ring physician was supposed to be. So, like, I'm yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. And maybe among the reasons I stopped covering boxing is I eventually would keep coming home from boxing, and my wife would see my shirts. It had blood on them. We used to sit that close to the ring. So maybe that was the time to transition, but I enjoyed everything. There was not a stop, and there has not been a stop to what I've done along the way that I haven't truly enjoyed
0: absolutely and then so you said there was never a beat you wanted to leave but obviously you ended up shifting different beats over the course of your career before you landed on the heat so when there when these opportunities did come up what was your thought process as far as well i really like this but this could be a good opportunity
1: for me. oh i did not want to leave gainesville they were paying my rent i was living with co-eds i was 27 years old life was perfect to me and basically it was like hey when do you ask for this you're gonna have to do this and it was fun i mean from the get-go just what the NBA was then to what it was now, and as a fledgling team that no one knew anything better, we used to fly with the players, they flew commercially. I had one flight, we went to Salt Lake City, and, and the one thing I was told, when you travel with the team, never take your shoes off on a flight, like I'm sure you and everyone else do. All of a sudden, we're taxing into Salt Lake City, and I looked down, and I have to admit it, I was young then, I had a pair of cowboy boots. Okay. But I looked down and they weren't there. You might know the name, Billy Thompson, the former Louisville player, an NBA player, was sitting in first class, way in front of me on the plane. He's holding up and waving my boots at me. I had to get off the plane, wait for my luggage, put on a pair of sneakers, and walk through the snow. So it was kind of those kind of things in the early years that made it so much fun. I used to go over and play at Star Island uh, in Miami where Madonna lived, uh, and a bunch of people played tennis at his house with Ronnie and And Ronnie's a very good tennis player, but he used to get mad at me because I'd have to lob the ball because he's six feet a gazillion inches. He actually invoked a rule. I was not allowed to lob because that wasn't real tennis. So basically, I have no way to play him fair and square on the up and up. Any high ball I hit that wasn't a lob, he hit in my face. But those were the kind of relationships you had back then. It was a different time. Mm -hmm. It was more direct, more one-on-one. So as soon as I, I segued to the heat, I never really looked back.
0: That makes complete sense. So your story about being on the team airplane kind of reminds me, I was talking to Mike Reese who covers the Patriots over at ESPN there. And he told me a story about how when he used to work for the Patriots website specifically, he would occasionally, they would make weekly picks, and one week early on in Belichick's tenure there, he picked the Jets to beat the Patriots, and I think it was like only the second or third game since Belichick left the Jets. And one of the players may or may not have accidentally dumped a piece of luggage on him. So, uh, to you, as far as when, back when those relationships were a lot more close and personal than they are today, did you ever, I mean, get any heat or feel uncomfortable with the way that players would treat you if you wrote critically about them?
1: You know, I I say this, and I'm not necessarily going to bring up the name, there's only been one Heat player in 32 years who I really had an issue with, Mm. and because I found out he was talking behind my back about this guy and this guy and this guy. They have a pool table uh, at American Airlines Arena in a player's lounge, and and someone else came up to me, and I went to the player, and I said, you know what? I've been here every day for 32 years, or back then, about 27 years. If you have an issue, come to me and take it up, and like that. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't pranksters. I mean, it's like, I, I don't know why players get such a thrill out of, pardon the language or whatever, but farting on the reporter. But it's like, it's a big thing in the locker room. Okay, I can deal with that. That's sort of what I signed up with in the first place. So stuff like that, the pranks and things like that, I'm fine with, but never really an issue. I mm-hmm. did have one player. You know what, hey, hey so this again, this is just because it's between you and me. Yeah. So I go in the Clippers locker room, I think it was a year ago, maybe two years ago, to talk to former Heat center Willie Reed. Mm-hmm. Beverly is in there. He basically tells me to get out of there before he kills me. And I'm like, and I have no recollection why. Why, We know Patrick's a feisty player anyway. Apparently, when he was in Heat training camp, at his first training camp, uh, Eddie House, you might remember the former NBA player, three-point shooter, was with the Heat also. And I I had written at the time, on a win-now team, you have to go with the proven veteran versus the neophyte who's just coming out of the second round of the draft. I totally forgot about it. I didn't think twice (laughs) about it. I am sure to this day that Patrick Beverly will never forget that. Somebody even told me this offseason, they said, you know what? He can really use a defensive guard. You know, why not trade for Patrick Beverly? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe not such a good idea. So whether it will be in the locker room next season, we'll have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, that sounds extremely like Patrick Beverly to remember a slight moment like eight, eight years earlier or something like that made by one reporter who's writing. I mean, obviously, you're not going to remember. You're writing about Eddie House versus a second round pick. I mean, that's a great story, though. Absolutely. So what really stands out to me about your extended heat tenure here is that you have obviously been there since the inception. And so you have seen this team start off slow and then they rise with D-Wade and Shaq then fall a little bit and go back with the big three. So I guess my question for you is after those initial years of covering basically an expansion team and then you find Dwayne Wade as a prospect. I mean, as a reporter, how did you how did you feel about kind of the rising stock of the team itself that you recovered from the very, very beginning?
1: You know, that's the thing is, though, people like when they ask me when they're down, how can you do this? And you always find something that's interesting or compelling. So, look, when Dwayne started, it was a lot different than most rookies because he was a supernova. So it's not like you didn't know what you had. You knew that about two weeks in when they said, hey, you know, we can play you at Point Guard. We have Eddie Jones. We're going to make it work. And you realize this is something special. And I remember talking to the other writers, and among them over the years are Israel Gutierrez, who is at ESPN now. And we always used to talk about those games when Dwayne wasn't playing. And we'd sort of go, well, why do we got to watch now? Now that, now, what's there to see? So there almost was a disappointment because you realize there was something special and you could watch it. But... You know what, even after that 2006 championship, when Shaq when came and Dwayne reached the top of his game, then you went back down the other way, the 15-win season when they were tanking for Derrick Rose, wound up with Michael Beasley instead. But you make your own fun. And, and there was one trip where, I, I, I don't mean to denigrate, but he was trying to sign anyone and everyone in order to make sure they could tank. So they brought in this player, very nice guy by the name of Kasib Powell. No one had heard of him when they signed him. We were in Charlotte, actually, on the team bus. We got a release. We went to his Twitter account. I think he had something like 43 followers. So myself, uh, Chris Perkins, who's worked for The Athletic and now works for our paper again, we decided we were gonna tweet so much about zip Powell that by the end of that night, he was gonna have 300 followers. <laughs> and when we got back on the bus, going back to the hotel, we had gotten him to 300. So it's those little things along the way. You can't say, always oh, think what am I gonna do? You're gonna go, hey, it's a game, how can we have some fun?
0: Oh exactly I think that's a great mindset and I was talking to I can't recall who at this time but one of the reporters I spoke to for this podcast basically said you know great seasons are really fun to cover but at the same time the bad seasons are when the most interesting things happen and the stories almost write themselves because there's so many different storylines that pop up instead of oh it was a Red Sox writer and he was comparing the 2018 Red Sox season where everything went right and it's like that's cool and fun but also when everything goes right that doesn't really make for a particularly interesting beat but as far as you know when the team is bad it's a little different now one thing i am curious about as somebody who had been in the building for that long is the difference in media presence from somebody who was right there from obviously from 2009 to 2010 obviously Dwayne wade you know he's right. a he was a great player but then he's joined by lebron james transcendent superstar along with chris Brosh, yeah, excuse me chris book Chris Bosh, in one of the original iterations of a big three super team. So, I mean, just from year to year, what were those differences like for you as one of the guys on the beat?
1: You know, there was a recent story about this, uh, and you probably remember this, uh, when ESPN started their own heat beat, and they had, you know, their sort of, you know, their whole setup. So, all of a sudden, you're covering it. Usually, typically, on a regular heat game, you have a writer from the Palm Beach Post, from our paper, the South Florida Sun-Sentinel, the Miami Herald usually three or four people, especially on a football Sunday, we go, we wait for interviews, you could do whatever you want. All of a sudden they sign LeBron, they sign Chris Bosch, they load up their roster, they get Mike Miller. You show up at practice, there's like 40 people jostling for position. So when usually, just a year before I go uh, on the way into the locker room, hey Dwayne, you got a second, I got a question for you. I'm working on this story. Instead, you've got Kevin Arnovitz. You've got Tom Haberstroh. You've got Brian Windhorst. You've got Michael Wallace. You've got all these people. You have Bill Ryder, who's now at a CBS Radio. He was there, I believe, working for Fox at the time. So it was, it was so jammed. It was sort of like you were covering the county clerk one day, and you were covering the president's press conference the next day, and you weren't the only guy there. That was hard. It was difficult, because it not only was getting what you want, It was having your bosses saying, hey, did you see what Fox wrote? Did you see what CBS wrote? Did you see what ESPN wrote? And all of a sudden you're chasing these other stories that you might not have deemed worthy in previous times, but they're concerned because it's out there. And that of course is when Twitter and social media and the internet was getting so much more intertwined into what we do. That's when my job went. When I first started, there was a newspaper that was it. Nice eight hour job. Mm -hmm. Then the internet started this thing called AOL and dial up if you remember back then. So all of a sudden, maybe a 12-hour day, you post something somewhere. And then social media, that to me was the 24-hour news cycle where you had to keep your phone, cell phone, if you had one back then, or your house phone called a landline, Mm -hmm. you know, back by your bed because you might get a call at any time. So to me, it just all came together. It was a supernova of what used to be and what never could be again.
0: Uh, Yeah, that makes that sounds about right. That, that sounds about what I, I just was curious to hear your perspective. And now on the flip side of that, when LeBron left, I mean, was it like a breath of fresh air to not have just everybody there all the time? Obviously, the Heat were still a pretty good team. Chris Bosh was still there, and Dwayne was obviously still there. But, I mean, just as far as the difference in coverage from becoming the big three, the team, to a good team but not the team sort of thing. I'm
1: going to be honest. That probably was an exhale. And, and when you wonder why these teams don't stay together – You could see why the players exhale. You could see why coaches exhale. You could see why there probably will not be another dynastic team. Look at the Warriors. That was what Pat Riley would call forever team. Then Kevin Durant decided it wasn't a forever team Mm -hmm. and they had to make some decisions. So I I, I think I was among the first and the Heat were among the first to sort of realize the flip side of that. A little bit before that, we saw that with Boston when they moved Pierce and they moved Garnett over to the Nets and they decided to reload. But again, even then, there was a lot of internal stuff with Ray Allen and when he left and what happened there. So you real, I think you realize then, just like you do now, whether it's whether the Lakers continue or the Warriors come back, that you're probably talking a three, four-year cycle with any team. So I learned that early. You learn to reload. And the one thing about Pat Riley is the different iterations. I know it's – look, I'm like you guys. This whole heat culture thing can drive you crazy, you know, until you think you're sort of going to South and Central America and you're drinking Kool-Aid and it's not really a good vision. But it really is true how they always try to climb back quickly. So whether they overpaid Chris Bosh that year, whether they made the mistakes with Dion Waiters and James Johnson, they at least were trying. So they always say, I've always said this, the heat have always been compelling because Pat Riley will always be compelling. What I feel for sort of my brethren who work on some of those maybe Midwestern small market teams may never have gotten the chance that I got and may never get that chance again. If I had applied through 32 years of, God bless all my friends out there who cover that team, of Sacramento Kings, I can guarantee you, you would have been saying, Ira, so what do you think the Florida Panthers are going to be doing this week? I would have moved on.
0: Yeah, I mean, Pat Riley especially is one of a kind, but I mean, the overall sentiment there is certainly, from my perspective, seems to be an accurate one. And now, one of the things I am curious to ask you is that you mentioned the social media aspect of the job Mm -hmm. and how drastically that changed it. And then we spoke earlier about in terms of, you know, you want to treat the paper right and the paper treats you right. But as these basically this last decade has made it so difficult for papers and made the digital medium the premier moneymaker in this industry, I mean, what is your mindset going forward as far as how, you know, you want to stick with this paper, but in terms of just, I mean, are you nervous at all? Or kind of what is your view on the industry? As
1: oh, I mean, that's the one thing. I mean, that's the overriding concern is that I've always told them, I'll take a little less money if you can get a contract. And the always answer is, we're a newspaper. We don't give contracts. Yeah, you'd love the security, especially, as you know, on a job like this, when you were planning out your life a year at a time. So even now, if I know the NBA starting again in December, December 22nd, throwing about, I basically tell my wife, I'll see you in June. But then I have to remember, okay, so if the season ends, regular season ends in June, playoffs, we can go on vacation, maybe August, hopefully the whole world's back right then. Mm -hmm. So you plan everything ahead. So on one hand, my job is to plan months ahead in a business that's very much on on an operating margin of almost day-to-day. So, I mean, you know, my wife has told me that this, my son to degree also is, you know, dad, you're sort of putting too much effort in there for all the uncertainty. But I think because you get locked into doing a certain thing, what you think is the right way for three plus decades, you figure that's the way it should go. So I hope, look, the one thing they say is, you know, you've got to do your metrics. You've got to have mm-hmm. followers. Well, thankfully I got my 80,000 plus Twitter followers. That helps because of the radio, because of the television. People know who I am. And, and one of the really cool things because I might not look as old as I am, but the fact is, to have dads bring their sons up to me when I sit between the first and second level at heat games, and tell me not only did they follow me growing up, but now their kids are following me growing up. I mean, you just don't see that a lot. I'm sure you're the same way you've heard maybe from your parents and older friends. The the venerable newspaper columnist. how here in Miami, everyone read Edwin Pope's, Edwin Pope, Up in New York, whether it was Mike Lupica before that, maybe a Maury Allen or someone like that or Dave Anderson, that they sort of were the presences in people's lives. I'm hoping that still counts for something.
0: I would certainly agree. I grew up in Boston and I have a lot of family who went through the Boston Globe up there. So Dan Shaughnessy and Bob Ryan, I was newspapers as hard as it is to believe. I did read newspapers and I read those guys. Uh, uh, Shaughnessy's still writing. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Shaughnessy's still writing and Ryan is retired now, but yeah, no, it, it, it is. I mean, I can't imagine how special that must be. Also, it probably makes you feel a little old. But at the same time, I mean, you have been on this beat for a long time. And as far as just looking back on these 30 years, I mean, would, you know, 18-year-old Ira have believed you if he, you came back in time and told him that that's what you were going to be doing? You were going to be on the same beat for that long and you would love every second of it?
1: Oh, come on. Just covering the NBA. I mean, I, I was everyone's kids back when this will date me a little. Remember, I started this job when I was 12. But back when not all the games were on television and you'd listen to the games on radio, when you had your nerve hoop and you would be Clyde Frazier and Earl Monroe. And I grew up with the Knicks team of, of Willis Reed and Bill Bradley and Dave DeBuscher and Walt Clyde Frazier. And a lot of people think Earl Monroe is part of that team, but it's actually Dick Barnett with the original guy when they won the championship. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that was it for me. As you related, if, where I went to school, if you could not name all 12 New York Knicks, they would not let you in the building. I mean, you had to know Nate Bowman and Bill Hoskett. You had to know the entire roster there. So, you know, it's very rare can you point your career in one direction, and then you realize, when you look back, it's like, wow, I actually, I, got, I mean, I've been so lucky. Right place, right time, right openings, expansion franchise, and all of that, and compelling figures everywhere along the way. Shaquille O'Neal, Pat Riley, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, right now, Jimmy Butler, heck, even Dion Waiters, you know, gave me plenty of copy over the years. It, it, so it's just everything has sort of fallen into place. And yes, the one thing I disdain is the whole social media chasing stories having to be first. Mm-hmm. You know, God bless Wode what he does and Shams what he does. I still don't get it. I still don't get if someone is five minutes or a half an hour later. Yesterday, for example, the Heat heat assistant coach left. Mm. You know what? I was in the middle of playing tennis. And I said, I deserve time off. I'm going to finish the set. Then I'm going to write the story. And if the Miami Herald has it first, so be it. It'll drive you crazy. And the other thing that happened, a matter of fact, that was just this past weekend. I'm sure you've seen this. Mm. Pat Riley had a season-ender press conference. And he mentioned how he thought there was an asterisk on the finals. What he meant was... He felt bad that, that Bam Adebayo missed a couple of games, Goran Dragic missed three games, and they didn't have their chance. We were all there, it was a Zoom conference call, we all took the context. But as you know, it takes one, one uh, sort of guy collecting stories and you know, putting stuff together, aggregator, and it started, and it mushroomed. And the first day I saw the stuff like, I'm not doing anything with this, this is ridiculous. And then all of a sudden, it became more mainstream. And some of the real you know, websites you've heard, maybe even your own, started picking it up and running with, Riley, it's an asterisk season. And to the point where I felt I had to do something and I had to write a column. And I go, come on, folks. If Pat Riley wants to make a point, you know it. If Pat Riley's angry at Danny Ainge, he tells him to STFU, only he uses the actual words. He lets you know all those kind of things. So it's that kind of thing that drives me crazy, that stories, I don't want to say a waste of my time, but where I could be putting my time to better use. I'd say the aggregation thing drives me crazy. And yet there'll be a story out there and I'll get a call from my boss. Can you aggregate this? It's pretty interesting. So I'm also complicit. Well,
0: naturally. I mean, who doesn't do what their boss tells them to? But how did it take you? Like this, obviously, this isn't a recent phenomenon by any means. This has been something that's been going on for probably eight or nine years. So when that first started happening, did it take you a little bit to kind of get on board with that and understand almost the, maybe not necessary evil, but the required evil that the job was kind of turning into there?
1: There's two parts of it. It's actually a part of it that I like about it is this. There used to be no worse feeling as a newspaper guy that if you got beat on a story, you had to wait 24 hours to tell people why the other guys were wrong and you still had it right. Because until you published. I mean, I used to stay up late at night, know where they delivered a Miami Herald at 4 a.m., go to the newspaper box to see if they had something I didn't have. Mm-hmm. So at least with the internet now, if you get beat on something, 10 minutes later, you could add something to their story. Hey, it's my story now. So that helped. But this 24-hour news cycle of just constant stuff and this Woj person who has ruined all of our lives, it's like, I don't even know how it is. With Woj and with Schefter and all these guys, you feel like telling them, take a nap, go to a movie. <laughs> Turn the phone off. But I mean, even now, even as we talk right now, as soon as I am done, I am going to go to the cell phone and see what alerts I have and see what I missed and have to explain my way out of it. The 24 second having to be first, I, that's what I'd like you to find out when you do your next round of podcasts is this, when did the first thing start and why is first so important? But I asked my son about that, and he goes, Oh, no, you got to be first. They had it before you. You've got to be. Like, I, I don't get it. In, in our business, this thing, I, I, it's a concept I don't know if you heard of journalism. <laughs> it used to be to double check your sources to add perspective to something, right? Mm-hmm. So, yesterday, for example, when Dan Craig leaves the Heaton assistant coach, my first thing was not to just get the news out who might replace him. What might be the options? Is this the job Gary Payton was looking for? Could this be Udonis Haslam's segue out of his playing career to add something to it? So I think that more than anything, more than Twitter, more than social media, more than the web or anything, is this whole, and I don't know where it started first. Gotta be first. And then if you're not first, you gotta credit someone. And I've even told people like this. When, when some other guy will go, um, some rookie sign somewhere, and they'll go Woj first. And I say to them, How do you know there wasn't some local community paper or some local 5,000-watt radio station that that reported it first? What you really mean is you're saying is, among the people I follow, he was first. That's that's sort of the one thing of all of this. If you said, hey, if you're going back to your 18-year-old self, what would you change along the path? It would probably be, quote, unquote, first.
0: Well, that was impassioned, and I really appreciate that. Oh. Because <laughs> it is a very frustrating part of the industry, to be sure, and I guess just – my own positing is that it's basically just a visibility thing. If you're first, then you're the one whose name is going to show up in places. Oh, cool. and for, as far as later on goes, when it comes to digital blogs like mine and what have you, it's about being first gets you higher in the Google ranking, which leads mm-hmm. to more traffic, which means to more money for everybody. And so it's, you yeah. know, it's kind of a vicious cycle to be sure. But I will be very, I'm going to be certain to see if I can hunt down exactly when that first first started, as it were. Yeah, I want to see it. And
1: then, and then I'll be listening to that full episode. Absolutely.
0: I'll be sure to send it your way. Anyway, Ira, that is quite an adventurous journey through this wonderful uh, game we call media. Um, But now we'll move on to talk a little bit about the Miami Heat coming fresh off of an NBA Finals loss, an NBA Finals appearance that I think many would qualify as surprising, as somebody who covered them from day one and obviously taking into, you know, with the except caveat that everything is strange and the off-season was weird and there was a five-month break and all that. Were you surprised to see this heat team make it all the way to the NBA Finals?
1: No, it'd be timely. I put it this way. I probably would put an asterisk on it. (laughs) When you get down to it, and i said this, there's two meanings for asterisk that people get lost. If you can look this up. One is something that is tainted. But Mm -hmm. two, an asterisk also means a footnote. Yes. Has there ever been a period in sports that didn't deserve more of a footnote? Would your hockey champion, would your World Series champion have been the same with travel, with home and road games, with things like, you know, with things like that and the different media requirements? This Heat team showed it has always been mentally steel. That's just who Eric Spolstra, Pat Riley are. So I wrote a story about this along the way, and it's true. This team was built for the bubble. This team found the right things they needed. But let's be honest. Let's step back for a second. If they had to go to Fiserv Forum against the Bucks as the road team in that second round, if they had to go to TD Garden, which they where they really struggled over the years in the Eastern Conference Finals, would it have been the same? We don't know. Mm-hmm. It is a one off. It is a different season. Look, I agree with Mitch. You know, I, I agree with what Rob Palinka said, as far as you know, we deserve a gold star. Yes, you accomplished something very difficult and arduous and unique, and I understand that. But I just wonder if it translates. And you've seen the odds for next season already. Who's the favorite in the Eastern Conference? Instead, they have the Nets with Durant, you know, and Kyrie coming in. They still have the Bucs trying to salvage, keeping Giannis. They have the Celtics with their young players of Brown and Tatum. You know, and and the Raptors, that they keep it together. I don't disagree with that. If you were to give me the field against the Heat, for example, who's going to win the East? I would definitely take the field, even though the the Heat are defending champions. Now, there's other years when LeBron was dominant with the Heat. And with the Cavs, if you were to said the Cavs against the field, I would have taken the Cavs in LeBron's years. If you were to said the Heat big three, I would have taken the Heat against 14 other teams. But I think coming off of this, I don't know what it meant, but I really do want to find out.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to find out, too. And one of the, the remarkable things about that run, as you and many others noted, pointed out, wrote about, is Eric Spolstra did a just stellar, fantastic job in every single respect. And I can pretty – I feel, <clears throat> excuse me, fairly confident in saying that you are one of the very few people who have been covering the Heat since he was a video coordinator there all those years ago. So, I mean, just speaking of somebody who has been talking to him this, throughout his like, head coaching career and is just overall – Career with the Miami Heat, how far has he come? And could you have possibly imagined that he would become one of the top three coaches in the NBA from the first moment you met him?
1: Honestly, and again, I, this is not sort of second guessing or second thinking or anything. I, I thought all along, because he has been so innovative from the get go, he had the nerve to go up to LeBron James after LeBron had been an established star and say, You're doing it wrong you got to get in the post, and you got to punish J.J. Barea when you get him in the post. You've got to work on your three-point game. And stop thinking of yourself as a power forward. You are a positionalist. What was his nickname for LeBron? One through five. You will play all five positions. He had the moxie to go to Dwayne Wade, who was great already, and said, I want you playing off the ball. I want you slashing and cutting and being the best slasher and cutter, because you can be a better player with LeBron, and he got him to do that. He went to Chris Bosh before every big man was and said, Start shooting some outside shots. Start shooting some three-pointers. Let's play like Kentucky and play five out and play that kind of style. He's constantly been innovating. He's, he made it work with Dion Waiters for six months. He made it work with James Johnson. He's found a way to make, he made it work with the White Whiteside. I mean, Terry Stotts probably was trying to find that this year in Portland. So I think Eric Spoelstra has been a great coach for 10 years, but like we've seen with Phil Jackson and even Pop, when you have great players, and it is all about the players, That tends to get lost a little bit. But I think more than anything, when you look at Eric Spolstra, if people talk about this Hall of Fame trajectory now, I think it was almost from the get-go. Pat Riley gave me a 15-win team and then gave him all the joy that is Michael Beasley and said, okay, go be a coach. (laughs) A way to make it work, and he gets to the playoffs every year, and when he has the talent, he gets as far as the talent rightfully should go.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and I would like to point out that he not only made it work with Deion Waiters, but he made it work really well because that was one of the more enjoyable Heat teams for me a Boston Celtics fans in recent memory was that big win streak at the end of the season that year and all that good stuff. Now, looking forward a little bit further the next year, the big rumors surrounding the Miami Heat of late have been about Giannis Antetokounmpo, and I don't think it comes as a surprise to anybody that Pat Riley might want to go big fish hunting. But as far as where you're sitting, what do you, how much stock do you put in those rumors and in just overall the possibility of Giannis maybe coming to South Beach and sooner rather than later?
1: You know, think about all the times before. It's almost like where there's smoke, there's always at least a, a, a small fire with Pat Riley, maybe not a bonfire. Yeah. Because he wanted Shaq, he got Shaq in the trade. When actually the Lakers brought him out there to be, ask if he was interested in coaching and running their team, instead he comes back with Shaq. Then he gets LeBron and Chris Bosh. Then he goes ahead and he gets Jimmy Butler when he has absolutely no cap space. And even when he doesn't get someone, he gets in the room with Kevin Durant. He gets in the room with Gordon Hayward. He's not one of these teams, let's call this uh, unknown team, the Knicks, who can say all they want but not actually ever get anyone. He gets in the room. So Giannis, you know what? It's out there. And yes, I think it is very viable. It is very possible. I don't know what the machinations will be. We have to wait to see on Giannis' extension. But the fact that Giannis and Bam Adebayo have the same agent, and they've been in touch with each other, and they have sort of that, you know, crossed relationship between the teams, yeah, I think it is possible. And now the question is, and you might recall this, going back to when the Knicks got Carmelo Anthony. They Mm -hmm. they could have waited to the end of the season and not send their entire roster, a first-round pick, that turned into Jamal Murray and Danilo Gallinari, if they just waited. Can Pat Riley wait? Can he wait till 2021 and go with what he has now? Or does he offer a Tyler here? Does he make a package? But yeah, I think until Giannis Antetokounmpo signs a long-term contract with any team, that the Heat will be in that mix.
0: Absolutely. And then we were just, you were just speaking about Bam and Tyler there. And one of the weird things, we were talking about a little bit before the podcast started here, but obviously the season is rumored pretty close to being slated to start in a very short period of time and obviously unprecedented times, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of these young players and the jump that they're expected to make. So in a normal year, we would think Bam would take an even bigger leap than he did this year. And Tyler would build off of that amazing playoff run he had and become a very legitimate, you know, maybe 20 point per game store as a sophomore. But these guys kind of had this like five month period where they kind of worked on their game a little bit. We might've already seen a little bit of that yeah. in the playoffs. So as far as what, Where expectations should be for Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero, specifically as these young players who have shown legitimate star potential, where is your mindset as far as how good they might be with such little time to work on their game?
1: I don't think that anyone who went deep into the bubble, any player on any team is going to have a quantum leap because they would have made it already because they had those four months. That was Tyler Hero's between his first and second year. The problem now is without a summer league and developmental time, I don't think there'll be another Kendrick Nunn, or, or, or Derek Jones Jr. or Duncan Robinson for the Heat because that's when they went to work. That's when the mad scientists would show up there, you know, and they'd take the dry ice and the smoke and they you know, mold someone into them like Dr. Frankenstein. They don't have those four months. The Heat and Summer League, every year I covered them, Sacramento and Las Vegas, it was always compelling because there was someone when it started I had never heard of. Mm. And by the time it was over, I'm like, oh, Kendrick Nunn, this guy can play. Oh, Duncan Robinson, this guy can shoot oh, Derrick Jones Jr., this guy can do more than dunk. So I don't think you'll see that in the NBA this year. I think it's going to be really interesting in free agency in the start of the season. I think you'll see a lot of teams go to the sort of known quantity. And I think it really sucks for the G League guys who were good in the G League last year. Then all of a sudden on March 11th and they said, your season's done. And, oh, by the way, that might not be a G League this year. So I, I think the surprise stories, the unknown draft pick, the undrafted player, I don't think that's going to be the story of 2021.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And then, I mean, one of the reasons that Tyler should – well, one of the various reasons that Tyler says that he, you know, has come along so quickly as a rookie is that he's Jimmy's rookie – or he was, I should say. Jimmy's rookie. And obviously, Jimmy Butler has become – especially with the NBA finals and kind of the media exposure that came with that, the attitude and the, you know, tenseness of Jimmy Butler has become something of quite great basketball lore, almost on par with heat culture, as we were previously discussing. So – when jimmy came into this heat organization how did you feel there was a sort of tangible shift that you could attribute to jimmy's presence alone or did he simply just slide in so perfectly i almost couldn't believe
1: no i fact, i don't think he slid in perfectly at all i think he's freaking out of his mind and i think that's why it works sometimes you need that big personality because when you have that big personality it deflects from others Mm. but If you have two big personalities, it never works. So when you have the personality of Jimmy Butler and Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, it's not gonna work. The personality of Jimmy Butler and Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins, it's not gonna work. It worked here because if you were to put it to me this way, Ira, if Jimmy Butler is the biggest voice in the Miami Heat locker room, who's the second biggest voice? I would probably have to tell you to pause this tape for a while and really give it some deep thought. That's how much the gulf is. That's why it works. That's why it works. Eric is not a look-at-me bombastic coach. Mm-hmm. He's not a guy who wants the attention, so he's not that guy. Pat Riley is more almost an image. You know, it's almost like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. He stays behind the curtain, <laughs> yeah. he's an omnipotent one, but he's not out there as much as he used to be. So that's why Jimmy works, because every room needs one big personality. Why LeBron struggled with relationships over the years is because others, Kyrie, wanted to be the big personality he had to deal with. Everyone was wondering this year in L.A., with the personality work with Anthony Davis? That's why Jimmy worked. So when you look at who he's going to bring in, and and let's look back maybe some of the names, it'll work with Giannis for this reason. Giannis is not a bombastic personality, very Mm -hmm. soft-spoken. That'll work with Jimmy. But if you were to try to bring in some big-time, big-name personality who thinks they're it, the be-all, end-all, I think that's where you get into trouble. Jimmy fits this locker room because he's the only Jimmy in the locker room.
0: That's a very good way to put it. And I love Jimmy Butler, so I like hearing just all about that because that guy that guy's awesome. Anyway, I actually have one quick final question for you on the sure. heat aspect of things. I am super curious. What is your best Pat Riley story that you can tell me right now?
1: You know, the one that everyone's going to tell is when he was in the locker room in Detroit and he stuck his head in the freezing cold uh, bucket of ice water and just kept it there and kept it there and kept it there until people were like, we're going to get the paddles out to save him. And then the last breath, he basically lifts his head up and he just tells his guys, that's how you play with every last breath. Mm-hmm. So that would be it. I think my Pat Riley story is a little bit different. I was having trouble with, I had mentioned before, with a player, and he was just great to me for this reason. There was one day in practice and really hasn't really even spoken about much where he always believes you have to treat people with respect. And he lined up all his players. And he told his players, and this is the word one of the players used toward being like, not the best word. He goes, I don't ever want you to hear anyone here calling anyone in the media a cockroach again. Mm-hmm. If you have a problem with someone, you let me know. And he actually lined up his players on the practice court. And I have unbelievable respect for that. That's the thing with Pat Riley is... I've bumped heads with him a ton of times, but he respects what I do, I respect what he does, and we both respect the game. Because when you pull back from it, it's a bunch of guys in short pants, trying to throw a ball through a circle. So (laughs) it's all these people who get so full of themselves because of it, it's sort of where the issues are. If you respect the game for what it is, and the fun it should be, then it's easy. So I respect Pat unbelievably for what he did for me that one time, but I also appreciate all his theatrics because it might not work for you and I, but we're also not in those locker rooms.
0: Definitely not. I think it kind of works for me though. I mean, it's awesome. He's just like, he is a larger than life man. And that's just so rare in every sport. And he's also- So I want
1: to hear your next podcast underwater with you gurgling as you try to do it with (laughs) your head in the bucket (laughs) of ice cream. Fine, I'll wait for that one.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'll send you you an unedited cut, especially for you. Uh, So moving on to the last part of the interview here, This is a very important question. What is your go-to place to eat in Miami?
1: Wow, my go-to place to eat. First of all, I'm not going to lie. As the paper says, we're the South Florida Sun Sentinel, and I work out of Fort Lauderdale. So I am not the guy who tells you where to go in South Beach. Nor is my salary scale at a place where I can recommend Prime One Twelve, although I heard it's really good. So you know what? I, my wife and I probably are more street food people than anything. You know, we just like a good food truck. And the one thing we're about down here is they are anywhere and everywhere, and and just the whole melting pot of where we live. I mean, you know, just I mean where I live. There's a large Colombian population. There's a Peruvian population. It's the whole melting pot thing, and I think that's why the players like it here also. Because wherever they're from, there's some of that here. So I, I would probably say that. I probably say not as much as food, and just everything together is the spice of life.ness of down, uh, you know, of life down here. I mean, I see that a lot in Toronto. To me, you know, is it, on par with down here. But I think that's what it is here: is that you can get anything almost any time you want. You know, it used to be, well, you had to play for the Knicks, or else you could find somewhere you could eat after 10 o'clock. Not a problem down here. No,
0: it certainly doesn't sound like it. Uh, next question, what is, and this is nice in general, it could be from your job or it could be from a personal respect, uh, what is your favorite basketball memory?
1: Probably that New York Knicks team I told you about, 69, and, and it's funny because my wife and I talk about this. That's the Knicks team of Willis Reed, DeBuscher, Bradley, uh, Dick Barnett and Walt Frazier is how they move the ball. And my wife and I talk about the same thing, and this drives me crazy. And, and you've seen this, you, you've been watching the games this year. A guy is right in the lane and has a layup, and the entire goal of this game is to move the ball, almost like football. Football, you're trying to move the ball as close to the goal line as possible. In basketball, you should be trying to move the ball as close to the rim. And instead he kicks it out for three. Yep. And, and, and whether he makes it or not, I have to explain to my wife, that is the right play. That's how the game is. Three is worth more than two. But it drives me crazy because my greatest basketball memories, and I know you as a Celtics fan, you know, being released from Boston, would say the same thing, are those great ball movement teams. The Larry Bird over the shoulder, the Kevin McHale right at the rim. Kevin McHale was never throwing that ball out for a Danny Ainge or Dennis Johnson three-pointer. <laughs> he was laying it in, same thing with the Chief. The Chief was looking at the rim when he got it. Robert Parish wasn't passing it back out. So my memories are of sort of, uh, I guess like soccer fans would say, the beautiful game. Yeah. And we've gotten away from it. And 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 so I guess the antithesis of that, if you ask me what bothers you most about the game more than anything, I would answer that in two words, no disrespect to the person, James Harden. Dribble, 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 draw a foul. Dribble, 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 two to three. What is that? That's not the game. That's just a thing. There was one year I voted him for MVP ahead of Giannis because I also respect this. The most important thing in basketball is to score, and no one can score like James Harden. But man, that's just, that, that's unwatchable basketball also. So when I see great ball movement teams, and the Heat was one this year also, even as they move for threes, I love that style of basketball. And even during the LeBron years, I was the first to say, when he do that thing where he pounds his chest and he basically, this is mine, I got it, I'm going to go one on five and score one on five, it's just not the same as what the game should be. There's got to be a way. My thing has been, teams are limited to 12 three-point conversions a game. Anything after that, it counts as a two. So instead of hunting for them, you take them when you need them late in the games or to still keep the floor space. But this, con- I mean, 53-point attempts per game, it's it's the long-distance shootout. You're like an All-Star weekend instead.
0: That is by far the most interesting proposal I've heard to fix the NBA's three-point revolution. That's way better than, like, moving the line back 30 feet and taking away the corner three. So that's super interesting. I'm going to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. But overall, yeah, I like the passing more. I thought – especially this year's Heat team, you mentioned, I mean – what, the, what really stood out to me was that it was a different kind of passing. It wasn't kind of like the standard pick-and-roll stuff that Houston runs literally all the time. It was the, uh, the ball screens and the off-ball screens and the various pick-and-pops and what have you. So a lot of fun to watch. But moving on, uh, this, again, this could be from any point in your career if you can name one. Is there any story in particular you've written over the years that really stands out to you as perhaps your favorite story that you've written or one you find most valuable to you?
1: Yeah, by, by far, the story of Quran Butler. And I don't know if you followed him and what he went through and wearing an ankle bracelet and being in a youth prison when he was growing up in Racine, Wisconsin. And I, I actually went up there and I researched it and I went to the youth prison and I spoke to the counselors there. And the greatest stories, the stories of redemption and coming around. And, and I don't know if you follow Quran these days, but what he's done in the community and he's been so active. And if you remember during the lockout, he was hosting a lot of these forums with Black Lives Matters and getting the vote out and things like that. When you see a person grow, you know, obviously you want your children to grow, and that's the most important thing. But when you can be with someone along the journey and know where the journey started and knowing that he'll say, I went to high school and it was a whole bunch of trouble and I turned everything around, and you see where he is now, a guy I regularly text and keep in touch with. I mean, to me, that story among them all is is the guys who make right and make it good. Remember the day that he drafted Karan, when he fell to number 10 in that draft out of UConn, Some people say he fell because he had bullet fragments in him because of that hard scrabble youth that he had. Not true, but there was some thought about that on draft night. So I think that stood out to me more than anything.
0: Yeah, those those stories are certainly the most powerful, and those are often the ones that stand out to us. But finally, Ira, my last question for you here. What's something about your job that you feel like other people don't know or they don't really understand?
1: Oh, there's two things. One, I hate freaking transcribing. (laughs) it's it's a a horrific experience so last week pat riley is talking and and the digital tape recorder the minutes are clicking along i usually take about one three minutes to transcribe every minute you want to get the words right and what changed in transcribing is it used to be well if he said everyone and you put everybody who cares what's the difference except now everything's on video also so the accompanying video might play on your story and you hear a different word and you're like well what else did he get wrong so that transcribing, Pat talk for 45 minutes, and it took the rest of my day until I got the thing done. I hate that. And then the other thing is the waiting. Mm-hmm. All you do is wait. The Heat will always do this. They will tell you to come down for practice or during the bubble, go on Zoom for practice half an hour before they think they're done. But they're the freaking Heat, and they're never done because <laughs> you know all about their practices. So there have been so many days at American Airlines Arena. I've been told media at 1130. You want to get there early, you get there by 11. Fine. 11.30, you're sitting there, 12 o'clock, the guy, uh, one of the PR people come in usually and say, who do you want to talk to? And you give him a list of names. He then comes in for 11.30 media, 12, 12.30, goes, who do you need? You go, good. He goes, yeah, they're just about to get started. And you're there till three or four o'clock. And I can, I, no matter how much work you say you can bring. And you can also see it though. It's like, and then people are starving. It's like those airplane delays where like a guy will hold up a bag of Fritos. I got $5 in the back. I got $8 over there. I got, because you're afraid to leave that they might get done with practice, but you don't know what to do. And at American Airlines Arena, and Pat Riley did this on purpose to screw us. The media workroom is on the other side of the building. You know, most arenas are probably about three blocks, city blocks or so wide. So there's no restroom. So if you're in the post-game waiting room and you need to use the west restroom, you have to decide whether you have that three, four minutes to make a run for it. They don't come in, okay guys, we're going upstairs. All of a sudden you're pulling on the door to the gym and it's locked there. So yeah, I would say transcribing I hate and the waiting. I probably spent, if I'd done the heat for 32 years, I'd probably spent eight years just waiting.
0: heat culture is actually just making the reporters wait because
1: they're practicing they probably aren't even in the building practicing yeah
0: oh that's great but yeah that was uh, uh, ira thank you so much for uh you know being really honest and open with all your answers and questions here i really appreciate you coming on and uh good luck with covering the heat the next year
1: Hey, and if I'm still employed, call back anytime. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) And thank you, listener, as always, for tuning into the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I am your host, Lee McEwen, signing off.